Luke 9, 46 to 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you shall be the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he had set his face towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his, his blessing to it for our good and for his glory. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, when we consider the fact that we can call you Heavenly Father. Those words to the unregenerate mind seem like an oxymoron. They do not go together. Lord, for we know that you are holy and you are just. And Lord, we are sinful. Lord, and we are guilty before your justice. And Lord, as your people who've been called by your name, we now know through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, bringing the word to our hearts and, and impressing your word on, my hearts, on our hearts, Lord, we know that it's only through the gospel that sinners can be in the place, in the, in the presence of holiness. And that the wicked can stand before your justice. Because, Lord, you have poured out your justice on your son in the place of your people. Lord, we know that every sin, every unjust act, will come before your justice at the judgment seat. And Lord, we know that every sin will either have been placed on the sinless Lamb of God or will remain on the heads of the unrepentant for all eternity. And so, Lord, as those who are the recipients of your mercy, we pray, Lord, that you will help us to see mercy. Help us, Lord, to extend mercy through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. The same gospel that called us and saved us 
It's the same gospel that sanctifies us for our good, for the building of your church, and for the glory of your name. We are at war. We are in a life and death battle. And we are in a life and death battle, not just with temporal life and death, but with eternal life and death. Your enemy will give you no quarter. He will give you no mercy. And you must give him no mercy either. However, you need to know who your enemy is. You need to know that you are that you're, you need to know who it is you're fighting against or you will find yourself fighting against God. This past week, you have doubtless heard the, the news of the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we've seen images of crowds grieving for her. She had served on the Supreme Court from 1993 until the time of her death. 27 years. And she was notably, and most notably perhaps, an outspoken and powerful ally for abortion. 30 million babies were slaughtered in the U.S. during her 27 years on the bench. So uh, you can imagine my surprise to hear that her supporters were singing Amazing Grace outside of the U.S. Capitol building where she lay in state. She had rejected the God of grace her whole life. And unless she repented in those last moments of her life, she has gone to, to her eternal reward, to eternal punishment. And the other song that was, was sung outside the Capitol building, more appropriately, I, I think, was, was the song Imagine by John Lennon. It's much more fitting. A song that, that, that ponders atheism and, and hoping for no religion and no heaven and no God. This would be a fitting epitaph for Ruth Ginsburg. So that surprised me that they would sing Amazing Grace, but it surprised me even more to hear evangelical leaders speaking positively about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Al Mohler, for example, praised her life of courage, principle, and conviction. Well, Adolf Hitler led a life of courage, principle, and conviction as well. Tom Askell's assessment, I believe, is more accurate. He says she promoted wickedness in this nation, thinking that she was promoting what was good and virtuous. So Amazing Grace surprised me. Al Mohler shocked me, but what really shocked me was my own response. When I first, in that moment, when I first heard of her death, I said out loud, good. Good. Now, there is a sense in which it is good because that she has, her vacated position in the Supreme Court has now opened the place for what we hope will be a conservative who will, instead of, of championing the death of the unborn will actually promote the life of the unborn. And it's also good in the sense that, that God's justice is being displayed on her unless she repented. 
I do not believe that, that heaven is mourning over the death of Ruth Ginsburg. But in my first response, I wasn't thinking about either one of those things. I've reflected on this many times through the course of this week, especially in light of this sermon. As I thought of the death of Ruth Ginsburg, I thought good because here is a wicked sinner gone to hell. Getting, yeah, she's getting what she deserves. And I forgot the fact that that is also what I deserve. That's what I deserve. Heaven is not celebrating the death, uh, the, 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 the justice on the eternal punishment of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Heaven is not celebrating her punishment, but heaven is celebrating God's justice. Heaven is celebrating God's justice. And there is a, it, it seems like the same thing, but there's a very, very big difference. As we'll see, I trust in the course of this passage this morning, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yet God is also a God of justice. So, so how do we reconcile these things? Well, as we'll see through the course of this passage, I believe the, the answer is one of, of heart. We must be very careful to have the balanced biblical attitude towards the wicked. An attitude that comes from a heart of humility. To know that apart from, uh, unless God's sovereign grace has been has been imparted to you that you also are a vessel of wrath. We look out at the evil that's, that's going on around us and, and we get riled up. We see injustices at, at every level of government, every sector of society, in the media, the schools, our city, our neighborhoods. We're aware of all kinds of crimes, of, of personal crimes, property crimes, statutory crimes, financial crimes. We see Kelowna being overrun by drugs. We see Hollywood promoting perversion. We see our once safe neighborhoods being given over to criminals. We see churches being treated unfairly. We find ourselves crying out for justice. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with crying out for justice. We should be concerned by what we see taking place around us. We should be crying out to God about these things. However, the problem comes when we seek to take justice into our own hands. When we seek to be the instruments of justice ourselves, personally bringing judgment or hoping for judgment on wicked men, as though we are any better but for God's grace. So the extent that we do this reveals the fact that we do not know who our enemy really is. We reveal that we do not know ourselves. We, we act as though our, our fellow human beings are our enemies, and we're acting as though we are God. Now, I think men are particularly aware of these things and, and are particularly prone to, to, to these things. They, they want to protect, and that's a good thing. I know, men, that, that people may, may try to harm you or your loved ones, especially by, by trying to influence them away from God. And, and I know that you must respond. But is your response according to the natural man or is your response supernatural? 
Is your response the same as the kind of response that you would have had towards these things as an unbeliever? Or is your response instead the response of the, the believer who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and guided by God's word to follow in the steps of Jesus and his example of meekness and humility? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, know, I know that people may make themselves your enemy. However, you do not need to regard them as such. You do not need to respond in kind. Abraham Lincoln is, is said to have delivered a speech at the height of the American Civil War in which he spoke of those in the South as, as fellow human beings who were in error. And he was chastised by an elderly woman who was in the crowd because, because, because Lincoln did not see them as irreconcilable enemies who must be destroyed. Lincoln's reply? He said, why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do you not destroy your enemies by making them your friends? Again, people may make themselves your enemy, but you don't have to see them as your enemy. You, you, you have an enemy. You do have an enemy. And it is not that person who has wronged you. It is not that person who has insulted you or, or, or done something that, that you feel is against what you know to be good and right. In fact, this enemy that I'm speaking of is not a human being at all. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over, the, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12. You do have an enemy. The devil is your enemy. His, but you don't have to respond in kind to people who act as your enemy. Quite the opposite. In fact, you must not respond in kind. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. In our passage this morning, we're going to see the disciples failing to understand who their enemy really is. We'll see the disciples trying to overcome evil with evil. They're, and they're trying to overcome evil with evil, all in the name of good. So last week we saw the dysfunctional disciples continuing their tumble down from the Mount of Transfiguration as they revealed their ugly pride. In verses 46 to 48, they displayed conceit with each other. In verses 49 and 50, they displayed factionalism with outsiders. And this morning we're going to see in verses 51 to 56 that they are on the same trajectory as they display harshness with the Samaritans. And again, this is pride. It's pride. It's a continuation on, of the lesson of humility. They have displayed pride towards each other. They've displayed pride towards outsiders. And now they're displaying pride towards their enemies. The proud will not be merciful. The proud forget that they themselves are objects of mercy and as such must show mercy. Just like we saw a reflection of our own pride to, in the, the action of the disciples, we'll, we'll see our own pride again this morning. 
Last week we saw the, the pride towards each other and the way we see pride in the, in the local church in, in magnifying the weaknesses of others and, and seeing ourselves as more important than each other and, and being, being quick to speak and slow to listen and being easily offended and advancing our own interests. Last week we also our own, saw our own pride towards outsiders and fostering factualism, adopting a, an us and them kind of attitude towards other Christians and churches and denominations. Pride does not build the church. Pride builds barriers. And this kind of pride that we're talking about this morning does not build the church either. It is so concerned with retributive justice that it does not communicate the gospel of grace. I have five key points this morning. Now you might be thinking, well, hang on a second. Didn't you say that I just had one point left over from last week? This is preacher's prerogative. I'll be dealing on this passage on its own. It gives me time to drill down more deeply. But don't worry, they're going to be five briefer points. So this morning we're going to see in verse 51, Jesus' resolution. In verses 52 and 53, the Samaritan's rejection. In verse 54, the disciples' retribution. In verse 55, the, we see Jesus' reprehension. And in verse 56, the company's relocation. So first of all, verse 51, Jesus' resolution. With verse 51, there is a transition in Luke's gospel account. Jesus' ministry in Galilee has now come to an end. It began, remember, back in in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, as Jesus returned to Galilee in, this, in the power of the Spirit and announced, quoting Isaiah 61 and 58, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's Luke 4, 18 and 19. And then throughout Throughout Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we saw him traveling throughout the region, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing people. Now, in that section, although there were several examples of his teaching, the emphasis was on his miraculous deeds. Well, again, there's a shift here as we as we look as we go into verse 51, as, as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. Now, there's a, the, the other the gospels do not, do, do not include much of the material that we see in these 10 chapters from, from the end of Luke 9 to the end of Luke 19. And there's a different, there's a different emphasis here. The emphasis here is, is more on, on the teaching that takes place along the way. Now, there's going to be miracles here as well, but the, the main focus is on, is on his teaching, and, and most notably, the parables. There's 17 parables in this section, and... and the vast majority of them are unique to Luke's gospel account. Now, so with Luke 9.51, Jesus is now resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem. The refrain throughout this, this section is, is that he is headed towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the religious and the political and cultural capital of Israel. Now, again, this section is going to take us almost all the, all the way to the end of, of chapter 19 and, and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But this, this journey is really only, it would only, take, it would only take less than a week to walk there from where he was to Jerusalem. But it takes almost a year to get there. 
Why is that? If Jesus, I don't know, personally, like if I'm setting my face resolutely to go somewhere, I'm, I'm taking the straightest route. But, but Jesus, Jesus takes this meandering route. It takes almost a year to get there. Why is that? It's, it's, on one level, it's because he is on a ministry of mercy. To go and teach to all of those individuals that he goes to as he's on his way through that circuitous route to Jerusalem. But, but on another level, it's because of the disciples. He, he, Jesus knows that he's going to be departing soon, and he knows that, that the disciples are going to be the ones who will continue the ministry. And, and he knows, we've just seen it, it very clearly, that they are not yet ready. They need this time of teaching. They, they, they need to see from Jesus and hear from Jesus what it means to, to proclaim the gospel, what it means to be a man of God. Remember how the Galilean ministry ended with their, their pride manifested towards each other as they argued about who was the greatest. Even after, immediately after, Jesus has said that he was going to the cross. And they manifested their, their pride in, in, in trying to block somebody who was casting out demons that was not one of them. So the Galilean ministry ended quite poorly on the part of the disciples. And the, the journey to Jerusalem is going to begin in the same way, with, with pride. With pride, this time, towards their perceived enemies, the Samaritans. Now, Jesus' ministry on the road to Jerusalem is going to also end very, is, it's going to end pretty much as his ministry in Galilee ended as well, with the disciples' failure. So the disciples are going to need this time again to be developed, to be taught and trained, and to be discipled. The disciples need to be discipled. But there's another sense in which this, this section is going to begin and end in the same way. It's going to begin and it's going to end with rejection. It's going to begin with the rejection of Jesus in the Samaritan village as he's on his way to Jerusalem, and it's going to end with the build-up to the rejection of Jesus as he arrives in Jerusalem. And so at the end of 19, we're going to see the rejection of Jesus in Jerusalem. And this rejection is going to culminate in the cross. And this was the mission of Jesus, though the disciples at this point failed to understand it. So then with verse 51, the days drew near for him to be taken up. Now the words, the day drew near, can also be translated, the days were fulfilled. The days were fulfilled. The days were fulfilled for Jesus to be taken up. This is referring to Jesus, refer the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry in his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and exaltation to the right hand of God. This idea of Jesus being taken up refers to the, the whole package the implication that it's all part of God's plan. That, 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 it's, that as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he has a single-minded determination to fulfill the covenant of redemption. This is the main reason he came. This is the main reason for the incarnation. Now, Jesus has declared this to the disciples twice now, but, but now the cross is going to cast a shadow over the rest of, this, of his journey. Through this section and into the next, 
all the way to chapter 23 when the crucifixion actually takes place. As John MacArthur says, the focus is no longer on Jesus' coming, but on his going. And Jesus has set his face like flint, so to speak, on completing his mission. And so let us resolutely follow him. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. J.C. Ryle exhorts us, forever let us remember that as he was ready to suffer, he is always ready to save. The man that comes to Christ by faith should never doubt Christ's willingness to save him. Friends, Jesus was willing to suffer. Jesus is willing to save. Come to him and be saved. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem on a mission of mercy to die for the sins of his people. And that mission included a stop at this Samaritan village. Jesus' ministry to outsiders, remember, is a prominent theme of Luke's gospel account. So now let's consider in verses 52 and 53 the Samaritan's rejection. Samaritan's rejection. So Jesus' first intended destination on the way to Jerusalem that is recorded for us is here. It's, it's this Samaritan village. A little bit of background for you that uh, Samaria was, was on the direct route from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in southern central Israel. However, religious Jews who were on, on pilgrimage from Galilee towards Jerusalem would avoid the, the region of Samaria. They would take the, it would take them an extra three days to travel around Samaria because they wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Samaritans. Why the bad blood with the Samaritans? Well, the city of Samaria was founded by the wicked King Omri as the capital of the competing northern region of Israel. The region had been, been settled by the, in, in, by the descendants of Israelites who had married with foreigners who had been sent to the region by the Assyrians. And so part of the reason for the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was ethnic. However, it was also religious. The, the Samaritan religion was also a, a syncretistic blend of, of Judaism and paganism. The Samaritans had even built a, a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans had, had attempted to block the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after the exile. And so they were thus despised by the Jews all the way to the time of Jesus. But the hatred went both ways. Like much of the bigotry in, that we see in our day, hatred usually goes both ways. And we're going to see that taking place here in a moment. So most Jews would have, have traveled around Samaria to get to Jerusalem, but not Jesus. Jesus does not avoid Samaria or Samaritans. Jesus has already reached out to the, the Samaritans in another town and saved many in John chapter 4, an event that's not recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. 
And now Jesus is in Samaria again. He sent messengers from his disciples to go ahead of him to make preparations for his arrival. And it was courtesy because this group of, of, of 13 men and possibly more would have been a burden on the resources of a small village So they, they, if they'd arrived without warning. So they came to give them opportunity to repair, to prepare. But we're told in verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. They essentially said, get lost. Get out of here. Clearly, it didn't go well. Now, we need to consider these words carefully. They, they were not here rejecting Jesus because of who he is. They were rejecting Jesus because of his destination. They rejected him because he was headed for Jerusalem. They, they refused to help any, any Jew on the way to Jerusalem. The, the Maccabean ruler, John Arcanus, had destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim during the intertestimonial period, and the Samaritans were still bitter about it. They didn't want any Jew going to the, the temple in Jerusalem, which still, stand because, still stood because their temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim had been destroyed by a Jew. They were still bitter about it. The first century historian Josephus says that the Samaritans commonly mistreated pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, even murdering them on occasion. Maybe that's even part of the reason why Jews would avoid it. But again, not Jesus. The Samaritans were in bondage to false worship. And through Jesus, they could have been set free. When the Samaritan woman had said to Jesus in John 4.20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship, Jesus replied in verses 21 and 22, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And this woman repented and turned to Jesus and was saved. And so were many other Samaritans, but not these Samaritans. I wonder here, which came first, the, the Jews' hatred of the Samaritans or the Samaritans' hatred of the Jews? It really doesn't matter. Both sides were blinded by bitterness and bigotry. And both sides needed to repent. Verse 54. Let's look at the disciples' retribution. The disciples' retribution. James and John are outraged. They're outraged at the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus. And so they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now they were zealous, but it was misguided zeal. And there's even an element of, of faith here. But that faith was somehow absent when it came to helping a young boy so recently is now present to destroy a whole village. They wanted to call down fire from heaven, but they'd been told specifically by Jesus what to do in such, in, in such a case. Just so recently when Jesus had sent them out, Luke 9, 5, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. 
Not call down fire from heaven. Shake the dust off your feet. Show them that, 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 they're, being, that they're behaving wickedly. And, and hopefully make them stop and think about the fact that, that they were sinning against God. Now we do have to acknowledge that there is a biblical precedent for calling down fire from heaven. Elijah had called down fire from heaven to consume the burnt offering in 1 Kings 18. And even more comparable in 2 Kings 1, in this very region, Elijah had called down fire from heaven to consume two companies of soldiers who had been sent to arrest them, killed them all. A hundred men consumed by the fire of God, called down by Elijah. And you can understand why Elijah was in their minds. Remember, they had just seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And the disciples thought that the kingdom was coming now. They thought that this was, was the time for the Lord's justice to be poured out on his enemies. Now, the disciples didn't necessarily get the verdict wrong. They didn't necessarily get the sentence wrong either. Fire will consume all those who reject Jesus. And unless those Samaritans repented, they too will be consumed by the fires of hell. All who reject Jesus will be consumed by the fires of hell. But 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. But you might be thinking, well, the weapons that they sought to wield weren't weapons of the flesh. They wanted to call down fire from heaven. Well, that's even worse. Because they sought to use spiritual weapons for fleshly ends. Do you hear that? They sought to use spiritual weapons for fleshly ends. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now please don't misunderstand me. It is not merciful to withhold the gospel it is entirely appropriate to tell people that they will face God's judgment if they do not repent. What the disciples are doing here is calling down judgment from God without preaching the gospel. They were seeking to be the instruments of God's judgment. Now this desire for personal retribution in, in James and John smacks of, of personal anger and a, bit, a bigotry towards the Samaritans. They didn't like the Samaritans, so it's easy to call down fire from heaven against them. It's easy to call for their destruction. It also smacks of a personal offense, especially in the context of what we've just seen about their pride against each other and against outsiders. Now they are demonstrating pride towards their perceived enemies. They're saying, how dare you? That's our master. That's my Jesus. How dare you reject him? That's the kind of attitude that people can have when it comes to their favorite preacher. 
How dare you criticize so-and-so? He's my favorite preacher. Now, I have to admit that at times, I have been like this. At times, I, I admit that, that, that even in the context of, of somebody rejecting the gospel, I've gotten mad at them. In Mark 3.17, Jesus refers to, to James and John as the sons of thunder. I have to admit that at times, I have been characterized as a th son of thunder. I remember clearly one, one individual who I, I tried to, to witness to. And he told me that, that he would stand before God and tell God to his face that he's unjust. I was taken aback. I told him that he would melt like a candle before a blast furnace in the face of the holy God. I think I got the quote from Paul Washer. Now, my verdict was correct. Unless, unless this man repents, he will be consumed by the wrath of God. But my proclaiming his judgment in that place was not, was not for me. That was not my place to do that. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to say something like that in the right context, in, especially in the face of such high-handed rebellion. But if you're going to say something like that, you'd better make sure that you're motivated by the glory of God and the other person's good. I wasn't. It was just pride. It was just pride. And I was forgetting that I deserve the exact same sentence. James and John are not considering the fact that they themselves are sinners saved by grace. They're not considering the sins that they have just committed. They're not considering that but for God's grace that they themselves would deserve God's just and holy and eternal wrath. James and John here, again, are revealing themselves to be the sons of thunder. It's especially true of John. Three times in the Gospels, we see him acting with pride against others in the Gospels. We, we just saw him forbidding a man from, cast, to cast, from casting out demons in Jesus' name because he was not one of them. We, we see him here and his brother calling cruelly, wanting to call down fire from heaven against this village. And later in, in Matthew 20, just before the triumphal entry, James and John will ask Jesus to sit at his, at his right hand and his left in the kingdom. And demonstrating that the, the sin that they had just committed just earlier, we looked at this last week, with the other disciples and against the other disciples. Can you relate to that? Can you, can you relate to, to being like a son of thunder? For, for many, the idea of, of being a real man means being tough. It means being strong and making sure other people know it. And many, many are, are attracted to leaders who are, who are forceful and loud and exude confidence. This braggadocious bravado might appeal to the flesh, but it is not Christ-like. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about being a, a manby-pamby cream puff. 
I'm talking about being a real man. I'm talking about being a real Christian man. And a real Christian man is humble. A real Christian man is meek. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is actually the opposite of weakness. Meekness is controlled strength, and it takes great strength to control strength. I know a man who, who's a, a, who was a former Navy SEAL. This man is a mature Christian. And I said to, to, uh, to a mutual friend, I said, this man could, could have killed me 16 ways with a pencil. My friend said, who needs a pencil? But you'd never know it. You would never know how dangerous this man is because he has been transformed by Christ. He's been transformed by Christ. He had strength. He did not need feel the need to, to tell others or to promote his strength because he had a strength that was infinitely greater than his strength. Because he's filled with the strength of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Anybody can hit someone back when they slap you in the face. But it takes real strength, it takes supernatural strength to turn the other cheek. And that might be true of, of this Navy SEAL, but how much more of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ possesses omnipotence. He upholds the universe with the word of his power. And he was even doing that as an infant during the incarnation. But Jesus does not feel the need to show his strength or to demonstrate his strength unless he's clearly motivated by love for God and love for others. But instead, we want to champion our rights. We see, we see ourselves and our, our sense of justice as the standard. We also see ourselves as the instruments of that justice. And we're tempted then to deal with injustice in our own strength. And we want to deal with it now. Friends, you don't need to be a Christian to respond with rough and ready justice. I would argue that it is more fleshly than spiritual. This is more like what you were than what you are. Spurgeon describes this as, as returning evil for evil. He says, it is beast-like. It is like the beast which kicks because it is kicked, gores because it is gored, and bites because it is bitten. He asks, is any man prepared to follow out for himself and his own, in his own case, this rule of justice? Is anyone willing to have this rule of justice they, that they impose upon others imposed upon them? He says, is he prepared to stand before God and receive evil for evil? James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And for so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can't do that unless God is doing it in you. I can't do that unless God is doing that in me. Now let's look at, at verse 55. Jesus' reprehension. Well, how does Jesus respond to the disciples' desire for retributive justice? He rebukes them. Jesus doesn't rebuke the Samaritans, but he rebukes James and John. Now, the King James here includes the statement, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. Now, this statement is true, but the, the manuscript evidence doesn't support its inclusion. These are true things. That they really didn't know what spirit they were of. That they were acting of the, of the flesh instead of the Holy Spirit. That they, they, didn't, they didn't know the mission of Jesus. Johann Albrecht Bengel says that they were not acting according to the spirit, which is the spirit of Christ and the spirit of grace. He says that when Jesus prayed on the cross, employing the very words of the 22nd and 21st Psalms, he did not pray against his enemies, which would have also been in accordance with prophetical Psalms, but for his enemies. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God is long-suffering. God is merciful. You can see that throughout the scriptures. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Luke 6, 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Are you merciful towards those who have wronged you? Are you merciful to the wicked? Are you merciful to the unjust? Friends, those who have received mercy will be merciful. Again, the disciples may have been right with the verdict and right with the sentence, but they were wrong with the timing. Their chronology was off. They did not understand Jesus' mission. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. They were conflating Jesus' mission now with what he would come to do later at his return. Then he will exact justice. Then he will bring down wrath. Then the enemy, his enemies will call on the mountains and rocks to follow on them, to hide them from the face of him who is on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6.16 6, Wrath will come, but not yet. Jesus is going to warn of judgment. In fact, he's going to do so in the very next chapter. But here, at this time, during his first incarnation, Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem not to conquer men, but to conquer sin. But the disciples wanted justice now. Now again, justice will come later. We don't know whether, whether some of those Samaritans would actually come to saving faith in Christ. 
In Acts 8, there's, we read of a, a spiritual awakening among the Samaritans in response to Philip's evangelistic efforts. And perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps some of these Samaritans were among that number. I wonder, are, are you more wicked? Are you, sorry, are you more thankful for the wicked to be condemned or for the wicked to be saved? Aren't you thankful that God's justice was not poured out on you before you had the opportunity to repent? And many have been killed, even killed throughout history in the name of religion, even in the name of Christ. And if we're honest, we have to confess that we have killed men and women in our hearts in the name of Christ. J.C. Ross says, let us never be tempted directly or indirectly to persecute any man under the pretense of the glory of Christ and the good of the church. As those who have received mercy, we must be quick to extend mercy. When you know your sin and you know that you have received mercy from God, you will be quick to extend mercy to others. Finally, and very briefly, verse 56, the company's relocation. This passage ends with the words, and they went on to another village. Jesus and the disciples did what the Samaritans wanted. They left. Well, think about what the Samaritans lost in rejecting Jesus. There were no healings. There was no teaching. There was no proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. No gospel. And these Samaritans, at least for now, had missed an opportunity to hear the message of repentance and faith. The Lord Jesus had come to them, but they had turned him away. Now, they could have been delivered from false worship. They could have been saved, but they were not, at least not on that day. Don't be like those Samaritans. I hear that this morning as an unbeliever, as someone who has rejected Jesus in your heart, you could think of all kinds of excuses. But none of those excuses will suffice on that day when those who do not repent will be cast into hell. Where Mark 9, 8 48 says that where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14, 11, where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. To those who reject him, Jesus will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Unless you repent, that might be your destination. That, unless you repent, that will be your destination. In Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he gravely warned the congregation. The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow is made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Now that might sound harsh, but in the context of a, of a heartfelt evangelistic appeal, it is grace. 
Maybe, maybe you have even recoiled as I read these words, as I read the scripture's description of hell. But in Christ, I'm, I'm calling upon you to turn from your sin and to receive Jesus Christ and be saved. This is mercy that's being extended to you at this moment. Do not reject Jesus. Do not choose hell. Come to Jesus today. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 2. Why will you not come to Jesus and be saved? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be rejected. And that rejection will open the doors of salvation for many, maybe even some of these Samaritans, maybe even some of you. And maybe even some of those you view as your enemies. You must know your enemies. The world is your enemy. The devil is your enemy. You are your enemy. You are your own enemy. In fact, one of the worst enemies you have is yourself. I'm speaking, of course, of your flesh. To these enemies, you must show no mercy. You need to acknowledge that, that oftentimes when it comes to obeying God, that your greatest enemy is yourself. At times, your flesh will even try to convince you to do evil and to call it good. And even when it comes to seeking justice. Humble yourself before God. You and I were God's enemies, but God has made us his friends. Commit yourself to the just judge. Commit the evil that you see around you to the just judge. Rejoice in the fact that you are now an object of God's mercy and then show mercy to others. Well, the sons of thunder, at least one of them, the apostle John became the apostle of love. When you read the, the gospel of John or his epistles or revelation, he, I think more than any other writer in scripture, in scripture, talks about love. He mentions love 116 times. The gospel of grace is, has transformed one of the sons of thunder into the apostle of love. And the change that has been wrought in John should encourage the sons of thunder among us, myself included. Commit yourself. Commit your way. Commit the injustice you see around you to the just God. To the one who has poured out mercy upon you and pray that he will also have mercy upon those who have made themselves your enemy. And so thereby turn your enemies into your friends. Let's pray together. Almighty and holy God, 
Lord, we are all deserving of your just wrath. There is not one among us who can claim any native righteousness. The only righteousness that we have is imputed righteousness, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account. Lord, we are all, every one of us, deserving of your eternal wrath. Yet, Lord, you have poured grace and mercy out upon us and you have made us objects of mercy. We who are vessels of wrath. You have made us the recipients of your love who only deserve your hatred. Lord, because of your love showered upon us in the deluge, Lord, because of, of the depths of your mercy that are unfathomable, out of those riches of love and mercy, Lord, I pray that you would help us to meet out your love and mercy to a world that so desperately needs to hear of it. And to those who are living under your just wrath, that they too might repent and become objects of mercy just like us. We pray this in the magnificent and majestic name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior.